Amen. Lord, um, there, there could be no um, better, more uh, life-giving pursuit than to look upon you. So this morning, Lord, we, um, we ask that as we look upon you, as we look to you, that you would reveal yourself to us in your son, Jesus. We ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. It's amazing how many more people come in by 10.30 than we're here at 10 o'clock. Wow. Good morning, everybody. I was, I was thinking as, um, as the band was playing, I was thinking a couple things. Number one, it's a very strange feeling to be down a couple of steps and have this kind of microphone in front of me than <clears throat> to be up there. So this is a little bit more, this is a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, but I was thinking about this, this gift of music that we have. Uh, truthful words and, and words put to this vehicle that we have that elicits an appropriate emotional response to the lyric. And we get to appropriately respond emotionally to what, what is coming out of our mouths. I, I just think it's, um, it's an amazing gift. Um, I'm, really, I'm really grateful for the musical part of a worship service. Amen? Amen. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be taking a break this week. Kirk has been in the book of Nehemiah, and um, when he told me he was going to be away and asked, asked me to speak this morning, he said, do you want to do a one-off, or do you want to just keep talking about the book of Nehemiah? And I've loved Nehemiah. And I think we're learning some really, um, really practical uh, lessons for our lives today from this ancient book. But <clears throat> this, this message um, this morning has just kind of been percolating on the periphery of my mind for a while, Main, mainly because I'm not very good at what I'm going to talk about this morning. <clears throat> Truth-telling and, uh, and grace-giving, um, or another a, kind of a subtitle is maybe um, having life-giving conversations with difficult people is not, not something that comes naturally to me. I'm not, I'm not good at it. Um, and the passage that I want to look at this morning, we're going to spend our main part of the morning in one passage that I think reveals to us <clears throat> the heart of the gospel, Jesus' heart, and specifically Jesus' heart for people that we think are disagreeable, we don't like, and perhaps we disapprove of them and their behavior. <clears throat> um, can anybody say that we don't have anybody in our life like that, that we, we don't particularly like them, we, we disagree with them, we disapprove of their behavior? Most of us have people like that. And then you add social media to the mix. And social media puts us in touch with so many people whose worldview is different. <clears throat> and, and you got a recipe for just kind of being angry and pugnacious underneath the surface 
all the time. Um, so I'm going to pray first, and then we'll, then we'll dig in. Lord, if, if, um, if there's anything that we talk about this morning that is not your heart uh, for people, I pray that that would just fall away. And uh, Lord, whatever is from your heart for us um, or on, on how to treat people, Lord, let it stick. And, uh, and let us um, purpose to live life perhaps differently than we're living it right now. <clears throat> Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Picture, picture someone <clears throat> in your mind right now, someone that's in your life, and it's the first person that comes to mind, and you just disapprove of them. You disagree with them. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a, <clears throat> a co-worker. Picture that person in your mind. We're going to ask ourselves some questions about how we interact with those people. First question, am I quick to accuse that person or am I open to hearing the whole story? Number two, am I severe in my assessment of that person or am I able to look for the good in that person? <clears throat> Number three, when I think of that person, do I think of them as an opponent to be conquered or a friend to be won? Next question is, when I think of that person, do I think of ways to punish them by the way I interact with them, or do I try to love them with the truth, speak the truth to them in love? <clears throat> Lastly, if I see that person regularly, do I keep a running score, or can I start from scratch with them every time? <clears throat> this, um, this tension that we all feel between truth-telling and grace-giving, it's, it's a real thing. The only, the only person that wasn't affected by this was Jesus. But most of us, because of nature and nurture, because of what we got from our parents through DNA and then our environment as we grew, most of us tend toward one or the other. <clears throat> most of us are like, you know, 80% truth-tellers and 20% grace-givers, or the other way around. And then we go on social media, and 80-20 turns into 95-5 or worse. <clears throat> but I'm going to admit to you that I'm a recovering Pharisee. I, I've never been to an AA meeting. I've never been to NA. But if there was a PA or a PHA, I would, I would probably need to go to Pharisees Anonymous, at, at least in years gone by. <clears throat> I've, loved, I've loved ideas um, and ideals more than I've loved people. And I've served the clock and I've served schedules better than I've served people. <clears throat> so it's been really good for me to study this um, it's caused me to study in depth. It's caused me to look at the heart of Jesus and how he, he treats people. And it's going to make me accountable to you guys. Because as these words come out of my mouth, <clears throat> I'm going to be accountable for what I'm talking about. So you can, you, you can hold me accountable. Not, not everybody at once, but, you know. 
I want to spend most of the morning in one passage that talks about um, how Jesus interacted with a particular woman. Um, But before we go to that passage, um, I'd like to uh, just briefly look at a couple of of men who were crucified with Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark gives us a picture of Jesus on the cross, and he says in verse 27, and with him, Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And then the next, the next couple of verses talk about people that would walk by the scene of the crucifixion and mock Jesus. They'd, they'd make fun of him. They'd revile him. And then we get down to the end of verse 32, and Mark writes, and those that were crucified with Jesus also reviled him. Okay, now now go over to Luke. We're going to look at chapter 23. Same scene, different perspective. One of the criminals who were hanged by Jesus railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, in other words, we deserve what we're getting. For we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus could have said to him, hey, aren't you, wait a minute, aren't you the same guy that just a few minutes ago was mocking me and reviling me? Um, Mark gives us the perspective that both of these guys made fun of Jesus, but then something happened to one of them. Jesus could have said, look, you're... Your life of crime is what got you here, on the cross next to me. Um, And now you have some kind of last-minute foxhole confession, and all of a sudden you expect me to reward you. You can't wiggle out of this, Jesus could have said. But see, Jesus saw his heart. This guy um, had the repentant thief had very few options when he was on the cross. He could, you know, hang there and feel unbelievable pain. He could watch people go by in front of him, and he could also watch Jesus. And something happened in what he saw in Jesus as they were all hanging there. And he had had seen Jesus say to the people that mocked him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He'd been watching Jesus, and something changed in him. And he asked Jesus for mercy, and Jesus granted it. Jesus never reduced anyone to their outward behavior. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Jesus never reduced anyone to their outward behavior, even if that behavior was sinful. Annie and I... um, We knew a guy years ago. Um, He was 
record company executive. And um, we'd been doing a lot of uh, work for this one particular record company. And this guy, when he came in and took over the company, um, he was a liar and he was a manipulator. And he, um, he tried to ruin a lot of good people's lives. And I can't, I can't even think of him, I can't hear his name, I can't picture his face without literally thinking about a snake in the grass, uh, just slithering around. Because to me, that's what he was. He was a snake in the grass. It's so easy for me, maybe for you too, to <clears throat> reduce people to their outward behavior. But Jesus never did that. He didn't do it to the repentant thief, and he didn't do it to this woman that he um, interacts with in John chapter 8. Um, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of time this morning. Let's, let's turn to John chapter 8. We're going to start in the second verse. I'm just going to read you this story. It's, it's, it's an amazing drama. I can't wait to see how The Chosen dramatizes this scene. Do you guys watch that crowdfunded series on the life of Jesus? Okay. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought the woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down, and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. <clears throat> There's an awful lot of uh, drama that takes place in those uh, nine verses. First, the first characters we have in the drama is the scribes and the Pharisees. <clears throat> I, think, I think to a certain degree, scribes and Pharisees get a bit of a bad rap in Scripture. They're always, they're always the guys who do the wrong thing, who say the wrong thing. They're always held up as people that we don't want to be like them, we don't want to do what they do. <clears throat> the, the truth is, the scribes and Pharisees, for the most part, were sincere. They had dedicated their lives to the study of God's law. They were pious and religious, and they wanted to help other people learn what the law said and obey the law. Um, sometimes I think in Christian circles, we don't say this out loud, but maybe we think um, 
the thing that made the Pharisees so pharisaical, so you know, legalistic and hard-hearted was too much exposure to the law. I, I don't know, maybe you've never thought, thought that way, but I think, I think to a certain extent we go, yeah, well, how, how would you turn out if you spent all day, every day, studying God's law? Can, can we have too much exposure to this book? Can we have too much scripture in our lives? Nobody said no. <laughs> I don't think you can read it too much, study it too much, memorize it too much, meditate on it too much, obey it too much. But if you approach it from a purely academic, cerebral um, Place, and then you have a hard heart toward other people and a hard heart toward God, I think that's the recipe for Pharisee making. <clears throat> um, I'm going to get up on my soapbox for just a minute and then I'll, I'll climb back down and we'll go back to John chapter 8. But I, um, the Bible is instructive in, in every area of life. It, it tells me either explicitly or implicitly, how to, how to live for Jesus with integrity in, in the world that I was born into. It did the same thing for our forefathers in the, in the world that they were born into. It, it's going to do the same thing for our children in the world and grandchildren in the world that they're born into. Because it's a living, breathing book. And... God uses it in, in all of our lives in an interactive way. And as I expose myself to this, God takes his story and my story and they merge. And if I have a soft heart toward him, then I allow his story to inform and direct my story and not the other way around. You can't have too much of this. All right, back to John chapter 8. <clears throat> so the scribes and the Pharisees, law enforcement brings the woman, the accused, before Jesus. They set Jesus up as the judge in a trial, and they're asking him for the death penalty, basically. Verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So they're, they're asking Jesus for the death penalty for this woman. I guess they were more concerned with trapping Jesus than they were about getting the law correct because the law says if a man and woman are caught in adultery, they're both supposed to be taken out and stoned. So they weren't really concerned with the law as much as they were concerned with trapping Jesus. <clears throat> can, you, can you imagine the, the absurdity of trying to trap the living word of God with his own words, with, with words that he had written? I mean, it, it really is. It's laughable. But it's very clever on a human 
level. It's very clever because they knew their Old Testament. And they knew that the Messiah, whoever he was, had to uphold the law. If you want a really interesting and time-consuming study someday, um, study the prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about who the Messiah was and what kind of a person he was going to be and how they were all fulfilled in this one man. They knew their Old Testament. They knew that the Messiah had to be a righteous judge. He can't just dismiss the law. He's got to uphold the law. He can't just say, yeah, Moses said some stuff, but, you know, it's okay. It's okay. We'll let it slide this time. But they also know that the Messiah has to be merciful. Old Testament talks about the Messiah as one who cares about the poor and the downtrodden. <clears throat> how, um, how he cares about the prisoners. He's going to open the prison doors and set the prisoners free. So they know that he has to be merciful and he can't pick up the stone and throw the first stone. He can't be as harsh as the Pharisees want him to be. So they, <clears throat> they present him with this trap. At least in their minds, it's a trap. Because they, they're trying to trap him in the distance between mercy and righteousness, mercy and judgment. And what they don't realize is, in Jesus, there's absolutely, there's no space between those two things. Those two things coexist perfectly in the one who is the merciful judge. <clears throat> and so they, they present their case and they say to Jesus, the person they set up as the judge, what do you say? What should we do with such a woman? They almost dehumanize her. They say, what should we do with people like this? <clears throat> and Jesus says absolutely nothing. Imagine being in a trial and the evidence is presented and the judge, the judge says nothing. He just, I don't know, picks up his phone and starts checking his social media or whatever. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything, either to the woman or to the Pharisees. He just bends down and he starts writing in the sand, the Bible says. <clears throat> everyone's everyone's got to be thinking, what in the world is he doing? Why didn't he say something? What's, what's he writing? And um, scholars have speculated for years about what it was that Jesus actually wrote. I would love to know what he wrote. But obviously, um, if God wanted us to know what he wrote, he would have told us. It must not be that important. Some people think <clears throat> that he wrote uh, the Ten Commandments in the sand. Some think um, that he might have wrote the names of the scribes and the Pharisees in the sand, and maybe even the dates and times that they'd been with the woman. One, one really interesting, this is, this is a fascinating theory to me, one really interesting um, theory is that Jesus wrote four words. The same four words that... Um, the hand of God wrote long, long before this. Do you remember the story in Daniel chapter 5? Um, 
there was a, a wicked ruler in Babylon named Belshazzar. <clears throat> um, it's, a, it's a long story. It's a, it's a convoluted story with a lot of twists and turns, and we won't go there and study it. But Belshazzar was throwing a party for a thousand of his lords, wives, and concubines. <clears throat> Talk about drama. Um, and Belshazzar had raided God's temple, and he confiscated some sacred vessels from the temple, goblets and things like that, and he was using them as his wine glasses as, at his party. All of a sudden, in the middle of the party, <clears throat> uh, a hand appears and starts scratching a message in the plaster on the wall. The Bible says that the wall was across from some candlesticks. So the wall was illuminated by the light of the candlesticks. Everybody saw this hand appear and start scratching this message. And the Bible says the, the color just drained out of their faces. I mean, they were literally scared sober in the middle of their party. <clears throat> and no one could read these words. No one could interpret the words for Belshazzar. And um, finally, he seeks out Daniel. The prophet Daniel um, had interpreted um, certain things for Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar goes and gets Daniel, and Daniel says, I'll, I can interpret this for you. There were four Aramaic words, mene mene tekel ufarsen, and he says, Belshazzar, this means you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. In other words, Belshazzar, you're a lightweight. You, uh, you're not up to the job. You're not good enough for the task. You, you um, are not qualified to be in the position you're in. And it's interesting, that very night, his kingdom was taken from him. Is, is that what Jesus wrote? We don't know. But whatever Jesus wrote, coupled with the words that he says, caused the scribes and the Pharisees <clears throat> to remember very conveniently that they had another appointment. Um, this, this writing that Jesus did, coupled with the words, okay, here's what we'll do. Let him, who, let him among you who is without sin cast the first stone. It caused them all to get up and walk away one by one from the oldest to the youngest. I love the way St. Augustine paraphrases uh, Jesus' words, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. St. Augustine says, either let this woman go or together with her receive the penalty of the law. They, they looked inside. They realized that they were lightweights. They realized this is not my job. And they all got up and left. Even, even today, in our legal system, if nobody shows up to accuse you, there is no trial. I was, um, I was doing one of my favorite things, jury duty, um, a, a couple of years ago. 
<clears throat> and I got, I got picked for the jury on a Friday. On Monday morning, the trial was going to start. Uh, we all showed up for the trial. Uh, they brought the jury out. We were seated. And nothing happened for a long time. And uh, the prosecutor, who was a woman, she got a phone call. She got up. She went in the back to the judge's chambers, spent a few minutes with him. She came out in a total huff and picked up her stuff from her table and walked out. And the judge came out and um, he explained to us that the, the witnesses for the prosecution, which were two police officers, they didn't even show up for trial. They were AWOL. And so she, she was really mad and we, we got to go home. Because if nobody shows up to accuse you, there is no trial. So that was, that, was this woman's, um, that was this woman's situation. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say that sin doesn't need to be punished. But he does say that it's not your job, Pharisees, to do the punishing. So it's not, now it's just Jesus and the accused, the woman. Have you noticed that sometimes... Sometimes God uses other people in your life to teach you things. And sometimes he moves all the other people kind of to the periphery, right? So it's just you and him. And now the woman is alone with Jesus. All of her accusers are gone. Temple courtyard is a lot, a lot emptier than it was before. And Jesus hasn't, hasn't even spoken one word to her yet. Not one word. She, she's had the best seat in the house for the whole thing. She watched the whole drama unfold right in front of her. Now she's got to be thinking, well, now, now what's going to happen? What's he going to do? Is he going to throw a stone at me? Is he going to write me a message in the sand? And Jesus finally starts talking to the woman. Her, her trial was over, but her interaction with Jesus wasn't. And Jesus asks her two questions. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I, I, think, I think Jesus said it with a little smirk on his face and tongue firmly planted in cheek. Um, I think he's just kind of joking around with her a little bit and saying, where'd they all go? Um, and she answers, she answers, no one, Lord. That word Lord is the Greek word kiri. Kiri means one who is supreme in authority. So she's addressing him as, as he is, as the Messiah, as one who is supreme in authority. She recognizes who Jesus is. And then Jesus makes two statements. <clears throat> and I think, I think rather than two statements, they're more like an introduction and an invitation. I think Jesus' statement, neither do I condemn you, is an, is an introduction to her of who he is. I think, I think he's saying, this is not who I am. That's not my role to condemn you. I think he's saying, 
even though you recognize me as one who is supreme in authority, I'm, I'm not going to condemn you. That's not my heart for you. And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. <clears throat> and I think rather than like a command with a wagging finger, I think it's an invitation into a different kind of life for her. I think Jesus is inviting her into a life where her lifestyle of sin is not creating a barrier between her and him anymore. That that is the primary thing that sin does. It separates. It separates us from God and it separates us from each other. Jesus disapproved of her behavior enough to tell her to stop it. But that's not what he led with. That was not the first thing he said to her. And you guys, for me, that's, <clears throat> that's the takeaway. That, that's the point, I think. Um, I think if we get these two sentences out of order as we're dealing with the difficult people in our lives, as we're dealing with the people that we disapprove of, I think if we get these two sentences out of order, I think we misrepresent uh, the gospel, and I think we misrepresent Jesus. The first statement, neither do I condemn you, it's an atmosphere that we create with people. And it paves the way for the second statement, go on, and from now on, don't sin anymore, which is a, you know, a moral, ethical discussion. Sometimes it's a moral and ethical confrontation. But the first statement, neither do I condemn you, paves the way for the second statement, which is a moral and an ethical discussion. Anytime, <clears throat> anytime we lay a hard truth on someone who feels our condemnation, I think it hits them like rocks. And the, the, uh, the inner Pharisee in me is going, hang on, hang on. The truth matters. There's this, there's this person in my life, and they're shaking their fist in God's face. They're, they're living in a moral lifestyle. They're, they're creating problems at the workplace or in our family or whatever. The truth matters, and i got to tell them the truth. And I completely agree. <clears throat> the truth matters. It matters so much that we have to create an environment of no condemnation first, or the truth, when we speak it, hits them like rocks, bounces off, hurts, and probably makes a hard heart even harder toward the truth. Okay. Home stretch. Go, um, go to the third chapter of John. <laughs> um, if someone is not familiar with the Bible, but they know a Bible verse, it's probably John 3.16. It's the most precise, condensed, simple explanation of the gospel in all of Scripture. We're going to read 16 through 19. <clears throat> this is Jesus talking. These are Jesus' own words about himself. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So according to Jesus' own words, where does condemnation come from? Who, who gets to do the condemning? Who condemns who? According to, according to Jesus' own words, the only one who can condemn me is me. You're the only one that can condemn you. Jesus didn't condemn the woman. Jesus doesn't condemn us. He, he shows us the way. He offers us the path. He tells us the truth from a place of no condemnation. And then it's up to me. I get to say yes to him and no to me. I get to follow. I get to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow. And if I choose darkness over his light, um, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who believes in me will not walk in darkness. If I choose darkness over light, I'm condemned already. But that's on me. And go over, go over to 1 John chapter 3 now. Even if, I, even if I'm choosing darkness over light, 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Um, and, and nothing's too difficult for him because he can change our hearts. Uh, Annie and I have a friend who's a screenwriter. And um, anytime he's writing something for the screen, he does it with this in mind. He tries to write enough characters that are different so that everybody that watches the drama will find a character that, that they can identify with. So I'm just curious, which character in this story do you identify with the most? Maybe, maybe you're like me, and um, your, your first tendency, your first reaction is to throw rocks. <clears throat> and uh, you get those two sentences out of order and are not loving enough to create an environment of, I don't condemn you, before we start telling the truth. Maybe you're like the woman, at least in this sense. Maybe you feel like no one understands you. No one gets why you do the things you do. You feel, maybe you feel judged even by God's people. Or maybe you're like the woman and you feel like you're just trapped in a lifestyle of repeating sin. You can't stop doing the things that make people want to condemn you in the first place. Or maybe you feel like, maybe you feel like 
some, a, a character in the story that we haven't even talked about yet, an observer in the temple that day. Maybe you're kind of out on the, on the periphery and you're watching this whole thing take place and you're, you're seeing Jesus deal with this situation and you're thinking to yourself, man, nobody ever talked like this guy. I don't know him, but I feel drawn to him. I want to know him. Um, whoever you identify with, um, let me make a suggestion that if you, if you feel this morning like God is nudging you to do something in an area of your life, um, let me suggest that, that we're brave enough to do something about it. Um, anytime God is nudging us to do something, he's the last one that we want to push away. Um, can, I, can you guys in the band come, come back up? And I'm going to invite um, some members of our prayer team to come up. And they're going to be available up here. I'm going to invite you to do something brave this morning. And if, uh, if God is nudging you to do something, don't ignore it. Don't, um, don't harden your heart. It sounds scary to get up and to come up. Come on, prayer team, come on up. Um, these guys aren't scary. You, you probably know them. They're not, rock, they're not rock throwers. Leslie's aim is terrible anyway. Even if, she, even if she were to throw a rock, she'd probably miss you. But um, <clears throat> scary things can be really good and scary things can move us forward in our relationship with Jesus. And look, our relationship with him is a following relationship. Scary things can help move us forward in that relationship. So if you feel like you want to talk to somebody, you, you want to pray with somebody, maybe you feel like, I don't even know who this Jesus guy is that you're talking about. He's, he's intriguing to me, but I don't know him. Come up and talk to me. Or um, maybe you feel like you, maybe you feel like, look, I'm just stuck in this repeated pattern of sin in my life. Most of the time, that kind of thing is just not going to fall away by itself. It's just not. You need to do the brave thing and talk to someone about it and be accountable in prayer with them and in conversation with them. And that's the way repeating patterns of sin fall away. So the band's going to start this song really quietly. And if you want to pray with someone, I want to invite you to do it. And if you just want to sit there and sing, that's fine too. But if you're being nudged, by the Holy Spirit. Don't push him away, okay? Let's start singing.